We'll go ahead and take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Psalm 132. We have just a few weeks left in our series in the Psalms of Ascent. We're going through Psalm 134, which is the end of the, this Psalter within the Psalter. Psalm 132 is where we are this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the back table. I'd encourage you, if you don't have a copy, to grab one this morning uh, to, uh, to have these words in front of you as we, as we consider, consider God's Word. Uh, I've been looking at this psalm for quite some time now, sort of anticipating it, it coming. It is sort of a departure from the other psalms in that it, it recounts some things differently. Uh, than, than what we've been used to seeing over the course of the last few weeks. With that being said, it is incredibly rich. There is a ton of things here. We could spend several weeks just in this psalm. We're not going to do that. We're just going to take this morning and consider maybe some of the 30,000 foot understanding of it. Let me read this for us this morning. This is Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn your face away, or turn the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints I will shout, will shout with joy. And There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This text in particular points us to something, some specific truth about who God is, especially as it pertains to the entire arc of redemptive history. Now, when I say that, you might say, well, what are you talking about? What I'm talking about is from creation Uh, to today. Everything that has transpired over uh, human history from creation today, uh, this psalm has something to say about. And primarily what it has to talk to us about is uh, where God dwells. Where does God intend to dwell? I mean, we see a progression throughout human history. In the garden with Adam and Eve, God dwelled with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in perfect harmony, in unity, together, uh, in communion with Adam and Eve. They walked together uh, uninhibited by sin. There was nothing that stood in their way. They had perfect harmony together and they dwelled together in, in perfect communion. But then as we know in Genesis 3, sin enters the world and, and that, that relationship is, is broken. And God no longer dwells with his people in the same, in the same sense. 
And as, as Israel's history gets going and as, as things move forward and transpire, we see then God dwelling or his presence being made manifest in, in the tabernacle, which is a tent uh, where God where it moves around with Israel as they move around in the ancient, in the ancient world. Um, and then when we get to this psalm this morning, we see made mention the, of the temple, or this is what the psalmist refers to as what, what, what David re- uh, desires to see God uh, dwelling amongst his people, especially as we look at verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Da- David longed to see the, the temple built so that God would dwell amongst his people in a fixed location, and yet David never saw that come to fruition. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then the temple is constructed, the temple is destroyed, the temple is rebuilt, but then we move forward in redemptive history, and we see that God dwells amongst his people in a different way, in the person of Jesus Christ. The God-man Jesus Christ in all of his excellencies comes down, condescends from heaven, and dwells among his people and accomplishes for them what they could not in order that God might dwell with his people ultimately once again. And then when Jesus exits the scene, when he ascends back into heaven, he sends his spirit which dwells in us. If you are in Christ this morning, you have the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Christ dwells in you. And therefore now God dwells amongst us, not because we come to church on Sunday morning in a building constructed with human hands, but because the spirit of Christ resides upon his people. And this is the way that it will be until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, then there will be restoration. There will be renewal. There will be an accomplishment of all that God has done. And and we will dwell with God again in the way that Adam and Eve dwelled in the garden. This is a primary theme in scripture. When we think about houses, we think about about a dwelling place or a base of operation. And and very much so, that's the way that God does. We have like a saying where we we have cute, cute little sayings um, that might go in a a script font in a piece of wall art in your home. Something that says houses are made of bricks and beams, but uh, homes are made of hopes and dreams or something like that. And, And the reality is that goes on our wall and I'm not bashing anybody's interior design choices. Um, don't feel judged. But the reality is that when we start to think about this psalm in particular, Psalm 132, we see a, the Israel's development of their understanding of what, where God dwells and how he relates to his people in the way that, that he thinks to David, in the way that he covenants with David, and then the, the way that even this psalm pushes our idea forward of the dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell? He dwells amongst his people. Currently this morning, if you're in Christ, the spirit of Christ resides in you. This morning, this is the dwelling place of God. Not because, not the exchequer room, not the civic center dungeon, but the reality is that God dwells in his people and his people gather together, God is there. And so as we process then this text this morning, there's a handful of things. We see, again, David is kind of the, the, the protagonist here. He's the one that this psalm is about. And maybe he wrote it, maybe Solomon wrote it. We're not sure. It doesn't say. We don't have that inscription right at the top there. But, but David, uh, David is uh, experiencing angst over the fact that there isn't a place for God to dwell amongst his people. And David's understanding of that, again, it has progressed over centuries of Israel's existence. But now, when we get here, all of a sudden we see God uh, promising to David, covenanting with David something new, something fresh, 
something that will point us to the understanding that we just developed here, okay? So three things this morning that I want to think through as we look at this text. We'll kind of like walk through it. We're not going to key on everything. If you see something here that you really want me to say and I don't say it, I'm sorry, but there's a lot going on here. So, so we're going to kind of break it up into like five verses at a time. I know there's 18 verses. Five divided by three is not, or three, 15 divided, whatever. You know what I'm saying. Math. But the reality here is that there are three things that I think stand at that 30,000 foot level that we need to get our minds around this morning pertaining to God and David, or we're going to state them as David and then God. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is uh, David's desire and God's work. The second thing we're going to look at is David's throne and God's word. And the final thing this morning is David's root, God's son. So I've stated these things in these ways, and maybe look at those and are like, that doesn't make any sense to me. They'll make sense, hopefully, as we spend our time together looking at this psalm. So Psalm 132, let's look at the first five verses, right out of the gate. The psalmist here asks God to remember all that David has endured. And now we kind of have to get our minds around what David has endured. What, what are the things that, that David has gone through? All the hardships that he endures, the psalmist says in, in verse 1. Um, obviously, this is trajectory is moving towards the temple, understanding he swore and to the Lord and vowed a mighty one, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So his thoughts what he's enduring is, is moving towards or thinking about where God will dwell. Where is God going to dwell? And now we know, again, stated it at the outset, but that David desired to see the temple built, but ultimately he did not. Solomon, his son, sees the temple built. Now that, again, that's a big deal for this text. And in, in 1 Chronicles 17, 1 and 2, or if you wanted to go to first, or 2 Samuel 7, you'd see the same account uh, developed here. But in 1 Chronicles 17, 1 and 2, David explains his desire to the prophet Nathan. He explains his desire to see the temple built. So he says this, Now when David lived in a house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that it is in your heart for God is with you. Now that makes sense. That's a good response by Nathan because David clearly was an anointed one by the Lord, um, anointed by Samuel to be king. And he, he gives, uh, Nathan says, yeah, go, go do it. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a godly desire. Go ahead and, and make it so. Do it. Go for it. But God decides again, not to allow David to be the one who sees the temple constructed. And we find out immediately following those two verses, verses three and four, we find out what God says to Nathan. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. And I'm putting the emphasis there for a purpose. It is not you who will, t- or will build me a house to to dwell in. And so the task then falls to, to Solomon. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why? Right? David, David is Israel's mightiest king. He is, he is the one that scripture tells us there's a man after God's own heart. Why would God stop him from, from building this, especially if God had placed that desire firmly and fixed it firmly in his heart? 
Why would he prevent him, him from, from doing that? And there, there's a couple reasons I see. First, we find explicitly in Scripture in, in, in 1 Chronicles 22. David comes to Solomon and he charges him, his son, to build, build the temple. But he gives the reason, a, a, a reason why. And the second reason I'm going to give you kind of flows out of that. So, but look at this with me. First <coughs> um, Chronicles 22, 6 through 9. The, well, the first reason God didn't let David build the temple is because God had wanted a man of rest or a man of peace to build the temple. Okay? So, 1 Chronicles 22, 6 through 9 says this. Then he called, this is David, then he called Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon. I will give him peace, or, uh, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. So God says to him, no, that a, a man of rest is the one who will build, build the temple. A man of rest is one, a man of peace is one who will bring this about. You have shed too much blood. There are too many wars. There are too many kills under your belt. And so he looks at him and tells him this. Um, immediately, I can't go on without saying this. Immediately, our mind should go to, okay, Solomon is that, but he's not the fullest expression of it. Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of what David says here to Solomon. A man of peace. One who didn't shed the blood of another in order to secure Israel, but one who shed his own blood to secure the people of God. So we see immediately this, that, that David is, is pushing this idea, or God is pushing this idea beyond even David's own eyes. What can he see? And so the second thought then of why God wouldn't allow David to build the temple is because David had a deep, despite the fact that David had a deep desire to build the temple, God wanted to show David that he would build David's house, not David build his. God, let me say that again, God wanted to show David that he, God, would build David's house and that David would not build his 1 Chronicles 17, 10, and 11. This is finds right in the middle of the covenant God makes with David. He says this, God says this to David, more, or to Nathan, who then relays it to David. He says, Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Remember at the beginning of that text, he says, David's like, no, I dwell in a house of cedar. Why, why can't God, we need to build one for God? And God says, no, 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 no. Your house, the cedar that makes up your house is not the thing uh, where your house or your legacy will live. I will build you a house. So again, back to this text. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So what God is saying is that David would have a lasting legacy, that God would establish David's throne, that he would establish David's kingdom, not just for one generation in Solomon, but forever. God was going to build David's house, not vice versa. <laughs> could, could we even say that God was more interested in David's hopes and dreams than his bricks and beams? 
Um, no, we won't. We're not going to say that. But what I do want to say is this. God was interested in showing David that his intent for David extended far beyond David's own life. God was interested in showing David that his intent for David extended far beyond David's own life here on this earth. So we begin to understand that we begin to wrap our, our, our mind around what's going on in the first five verses. Longing to see the temple, in, in verses three through five, we sort of have this poetic language describing David's all-out mentality. Like, like sometimes we would say, like, I won't sleep until I see this happen, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Obviously, David had to sleep. He was a human. If he didn't sleep, he would, he would just ultimately at some point pass out. I Googled this week. I was like, can you die from not sleeping? And they're like, no, you just fall asleep at some point. So he, he, he's a human. But the psalmist wanted us to realize how David labored over the idea of the temple. Again, though, God has different plans. He plans to establish David's house, not vice versa. And how God accomplishes that is, is wonderful. It, it is what we're about as people. God accomplishing his, his re, the restoration of his dwelling together with his people. The temple Solomon would build would one day be torn to the ground. The second temple that would be built after the exile would be torn to the ground. And 1,952 some-ish odd years later, there is no temple that would be reconstructed. Why? Because God doesn't dwell in houses constructed with human hands. That is not where God dwells. Stephen says it right before he was martyred in Acts 7, 47 and 48. He said, it was Solomon who built the house for God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, rather God dwells in a temple constructed with eternal materials. What is that house? Friends, again, we talked about this right at the outset. That this is the people of God. Paul, Paul was present. Stephen says this in Acts 7, in 7, 47 and 48, Stephen says this. Paul stood by and watched Stephen be stoned. You don't think that was an impactful moment for him when he, when he was converted and he thought back to that moment when he watched Stephen be stoned and much by his own doing and he stood there and he heard Stephen say, God does not dwell in houses made with human hands. And when he writes his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says something very specific to them in 1 Corinthians 3. There are divisions going on in that church. There are things happening. There are people saying, I'm, I'm following that person. I'm following that guy. I'm doing this thing over here. And Paul begs them to be unified. He begs them to put off these divisions that are so prevalent in their own expression of the local church. And his argument moves forward. And as we get to 1 Corinthians 3.16, as we get there, Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He was saying, don't be divided because you, you are God's temple. And sometimes this gets plucked out of contest and used in like this individualistic sense. And in a very real way in chapter six, just a few chapters later, Paul uses it as an, to describe our bodies. But the reality is right here, right here when he says, do you not know, he's saying you all, plural, that's plural there. You, do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you all? 
Peter says the same thing. He picks up this idea in 1 Peter 2, 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And I like to think in this sort of narrative that, that we see developing in Acts when we hear Stephen say those words, that it was a watershed moment for the early church. No longer is it a fixed location, but it's the people of God. No longer is it, no longer is it a, 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 a structure made with human hands. And his interpretation of that understanding. So we see in Psalm 132, David laboring to see God's house be built. And when it was God who was, gonna, who was laboring to build David's. If you bounce down the page a little bit, I just want to get down here to verses 13 and 14. It, the psalmist says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And then sort of quoting God in verse 14, he says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. The Lord has chosen Zion. And God says, this is my resting place. The place is the people. God made his dwelling amongst his people and so, friends, this morning, the, the, while it, it seems ethereal, it is the truth. Those as gathered people together this morning who are in Christ, God dwells here amongst us. Again, not the building, not this space, but in us. Together. In a very real sense. Now, that's a bit counterintuitive because we are individuals. We have our own things that we're going to go do even later today. But the reality is together, together, God dwells in us and we are his temple. So David didn't see the temple built, although he desires for God's dwelling to be established. That desire was very real, but God had bigger plans than David could wrap his mind around. Solomon builds the temple, but the temple was not God's final stop. It was a temporary dwelling place until God could dwell with his people again in perfect harmony just like he did in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, an uninterrupted communion with God, that, friends, is what we will have when Jesus returns. All of God's work in this world is geared towards, get this, all of God's work in this world is geared towards restoring his people so that he might dwell with them again and through it receive glory and honor that is properly due to him. All of God's work in this world is geared towards restoring his people so that he might dwell with them again and through it receive the glory and honor that is properly due him. Friends, if you're in Christ, you should have desires like David does, godly desires, to see, this is a godly, this is a good desire. Even Nathan says it to David. He says, no, no, go do in your heart. That seems like a good thing. Go do, do it. And while it was a good desire and while God would ultimately accomplish it, again, it didn't come about in the timing that David expected. Things God has laid on your heart, godly desires, maybe to see an unbelieving friend trust Christ. Or maybe it's to see your children hear and respond to the gospel. Maybe it's to see people in their church family growing and developing discipleship relationships, flourishing in this life. God, David's godly desire was for God to dwell amongst his people and he endured a lot to see that be fulfilled. But here's the takeaway. Those godly desires are good and right and honorable, but it's God who is doing the work. 
So when we go back and we even just a few, just a few weeks ago, when we look at Psalm 127, this point is no different than what, what's communicated in verse 1 of Psalm 127. If, it, if, if the Lord, let me get it right. Let me say the words right. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's the point. David didn't desire the wrong thing. He dedicated himself to the right thing to prepare Jerusalem for God's dwelling place. But God's work brought about it in different ways than David had hoped. And so we ask ourselves this question. Are our godly desires polluted by the expectation of how God will bring them about or the timing of them? Are our godly desires polluted by the expectations of how God will bring them about or the timing of them? Or do we trust in him patiently enduring as David endured? So the second thing we want to consider this morning is David's throne and God's word. David's throne and God's word. We've touched on a few things already in that. I got ahead of myself. That's okay. We'll, we just won't linger. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now, we, we know that things don't go super well for, for post-David, right? Things start to go downhill really quickly, even within Solomon's reign. There's a lot of messed up stuff that happens over the course of the next several hundred years in Israel's history. Kings who our hearts are time and time again, Scripture tells us, are far from the Lord. And so we look at this and we say, okay, well, cool, but what? That doesn't make any sense. But the reality is we go back to our understanding of what it means that God made a sure oath with David. In the same way that he made a sure oath with Abraham and Noah and Adam. And we ask ourselves the question, how does God relate to these men where we see these specific covenants being made in scripture? And the reality is that he, he relates to them in grace. He offers them something very specific that they could not bring about in and of themselves. And so when we get to David and we see David, and we, we've thought about that First Chronicles 17 passage already, but when we, we see then after David expresses the desire to build the temple, after Nathan receives the word of the Lord and says no, then we see in verses 7 through 14 in that chapter that God communicates to Nathan very specifically what God intends to do. You'll see just a couple of verses up on the screen, especially the verses 10 and 11 are very important again because it is God who is building David's house and not vice versa. But I'm going to read for us 7 through 14. Now therefore, is God speaking, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, the, from following the sheep to be prince over my people of Israel. Remember humility, right? David comes from a spot last of Jesse's sons. You understand, I, I don't need to give you commentary on all this. Okay, and I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and, and be disturbed no more. 
And violent men shall waste, uh, shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare that to, to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall to be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from, those, from, from, uh, from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this is the oath that God swears to David, right? That he talks about in verse 11. God says that he will set one of David's sons on the throne. Now, First, first Chronicles uh, 22 again, David assumes that that's Solomon, uh, and David does, um, but Solomon is the one who would build the temple. But again, a more complete expression of what God is doing and bringing about the restoration of the dwelling with his people is coming. And so the question here to ask is, is how does God relate to his people? We answer that question by grace. Not just for one generation or two or three, but forever. This is the free gift that David receives from God, an expression of grace despite David's personal rebellion, which we know there was a lot of. God covenants with David and establishes his throne and his kingdom forever. Not only through Solomon, but through one far greater. And so that moves us then to that last idea. David's root and God's son. If you look finally with me at verses 13 through 18, just these last six verses. The psalmist points us directly to Jesus here. In verse 17, he says it's a horn to sprout for David. This is echoed in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 when Jesus is presented at the temple as an infant. Jesus presented at the temple and Zechariah speaks this there. He says salvation is for God's people. It comes through this one. He is God's anointed one. Sin and death are shamed. Oh, wait, what? Uh, verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame. What are the enemies that Jesus came to defeat? Sin and death? And his crown shines untarnished by time. It's eternal. It is never ending. It is forever. It is everlasting. And even if we are going to back to the beginning of this psalm, we are called to remember what God endured preparing a dwelling place for God, just a temporary one. But subsequently, we are called to remember what Jesus endured to prepare us to dwell with God. The author of Hebrews picks this up, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The psalm calls for remembrance of hardships of David for God's people. How much more should we, every moment of every day, consider the hardships of Jesus Christ on our behalf? And just as David endured much suffering to secure God's people in Jerusalem, so Jesus endured the greatest suffering of all time to secure God's people for all of eternity. 
And David endured war and internal opposition. Jesus endured the face of mockings, beating, scorn, and ultimately enduring the devastating effects of sin on our behalf. Friends, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, that's an admonition to us this morning. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, I guarantee that there are many of you in this room this morning who are weary, who are faint-hearted, who are beaten, who are broken, who are, who are, who are tired out. Just your weak, I guarantee, has worn you out. Consider Consider him who endured such hostility against himself. That's the call. Friends, when you're feeling those things, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Why? Why would that matter? Why does that matter? Because the ultimate expression of this is when we find a, a dwelling place with God when we recognize that we will once again dwell with our God in perfect harmony, we will walk with him and nothing will be able to keep us from communion with him. Just as David worked to establish God's dwelling place amongst his people for even a small amount of time again, so Jesus worked to establish God's dwelling place amongst his people for all of eternity. Look at verse 13. For God has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his dwelling place. Those who are poor, down in verse 15, those who are poor will be satisfied with bread. The bread, not, not physical bread, not carbohydrates, but the, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. God's people are a royal priesthood. Look down in verse 16. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. This is not just the religious elite. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that we are a royal priesthood. Each one of us has experienced the salvation if we're in Christ that is offered through Christ. All because of God's work in Christ. So, that's so what? That's, that's cool, right? I'm so glad that God will dwell amongst us again. But what about the practical here? What, what, what can we glean from this text? What we can we take away this week? Let me give you three things. First, if God, intwell, in, excuse me, if God intends to dwell among his people, then we must invest deeply in God's people. <laughs> yes, this is nothing new. I feel like I say this every week, but the reality is it's true. We talk about community a lot here. We talk about it a ton. Because there is no surer expression of our understanding that God will dwell with us than being together. And when we get to the end of today, an announcement, so I'm going to get up here, I'm going to say, hey, community groups meet throughout the week. Hey, you should really consider joining one. And, and you'll be like, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. Thank you. And some of you feel guilty and you'll do it. Others of you do it because maybe you see it as an opportunity to get a leg up. Or others will just ignore it altogether. Here's the deal. God's greatest gift to us is himself. God's greatest gift to us is himself. He has given us his spirit, 
Friends, again, if you're in Christ, you have his spirit. He's given us his spirit. And what has he called it? He's called it a guarantee. He said, he said I'm going to dwell with my people again, but not only am I going to dwell with them, I'm going to give you a down payment. I'm going to, I'm going to show you. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a gift in order that you might see that I am serious. Christ's work accomplished it. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. And if you've wondered why community is so important to us, here's why. It's, friends, it's not because we're interested in nifty church growth strategies. Don't care. Don't care about that. God will dwell among us again. That's why it's important. This is the eternal life we've been promised. We won't be ethereal, detached, chubby baby angels on clouds floating up there with harps. That's not what we, we will be as we are in this room with the exception that we will be uninhibited by sin. It is a very physical reality that we will dwell with our God again and we will dwell with the people in this room. If you think you're going to go to heaven and you should be by yourself the whole time, it's not, that's, not, that's not happening. New creation looks like this creation, but without sin inhibiting us. And so God intends to walk and talk with us as he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. And if you're in Christ, this is your future reality. New heavens, new earth, so that God may dwell among you, among his people with no barriers. Friends, we get up in the morning and we, we, sometimes we feel anxiety about relationships. Sometimes we feel like, yeah, I just don't want to engage anybody today because it's like, I don't have the bandwidth for it. Friends, that is a result of sin. Like, that, is an, that is an innate, under, first it's an innate understanding that, that wait a second, I am, I am someone who can't deal with this, but then at the same time, I am someone who, who myself has been marred by sin and can't understand what is re- intended for me in relationship, both with God and with others, at least perfectly. And so in the new heavens and new earth, God will dwell his, among his people with no, no barriers. So what does that have to do? What, you're like, why, why are you going on and on about this? What does that have to do with community? Again, these are the people that you're going to spend eternity with. We, we get a jump start on it. We've said this before, three things that are eternal. God, his word, the souls of people. Everything else is going away. your house, your car, your job, your landscaping, your hobbies, God, his word, and his people will remain from old creation to new creation. So, so right now, we, we only have one thing in common. This is what I'm driving at. We only have one thing in common, and that's that we will endure and move from old creation to new creation and be restored to what we were originally intended to be. We only have one thing in common if we're followers of Jesus, and it is that truth and that we have the spirit of Christ that has been given to us as the guarantee of that truth. So, so Vikings, Packers fans, you can dwell together in harmony. Uh, It doesn't matter. Racial, racial things. They they don't get in our way. Young, old, money, no money. It doesn't matter. The thing that we have in common is that God will dwell among us again because of the work of Christ on our behalf and the guarantee of the spirit we've been given. Friends, that's why we harp on it. That's why we, that, I'm not going to tell you that you should come to a community group or invest in the lives of other people because it's fun. Because, friends, it's not. It's a mess. Are you kidding me? 
It is, a, it is an absolute mess. I'm not going to tell you that you should come for a chili cook-off. Chili cook-offs are fun. I, I like that. But the reality is that our, our love of chili is not what unites us. I'm telling you that you invest in the lives of people whose internal destiny matches yours and that you would long to see those who have yet to trust Christ do so uh, so that they might know him too and that their destiny might match yours. We always go to Hebrews 10, right? We always go to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the time when God will fully dwell among us. In the meantime, we stir one another up to do the things that God calls us to do, love and good works. The author of Hebrews implies here then that if, we, if, if love and good works are necessary byproducts of the relationship with God and that love and good works will fall by the wayside if we neglect relationships with other believers. That's what's implied in this text. And this is how God has ordered things. We're not the exception. It's not just Jesus and you or just Jesus and me. You are an individual, as an, as an individual, are not the bride of Christ. The church, of, the church is, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But there is no such promise for anything but the church. And to be follower of Jesus is to be invested in the lives of those that God has placed you in close proximity with in the local church. So those who have the spirit of Christ love to be around those who have the spirit of Christ. Secondly then, second point, if God intends to dwell with his people, then we must realize that our godly desires may come to fruition in unexpected ways. Now when I say godly desires, again, I mean something that is specifically related to um, uh, the, the salvation of a coworker, or a friend or a, a child. Again, I'm not talking about specific, it may be, but it may not be your lifelong desire to be a dolphin trainer. That is not, again, what, what that, that desire may be godly, but it may, may also not be, it may be very, very selfish. So, with that in mind, godly desires, thinking about things that are communicated in scripture and seeing them come to fruition here, here on earth. That's what I mean by godly desires. So David did not see the temple built. He desired to see it, and he secured Jerusalem for the building of it. Even then, fuller expression of God's dwelling place would come in the form of Jesus Christ. God was interested in showing David that his intent for David extended far beyond David's own life. So the admonition is this. You long to see a, a friend or a coworker come to know Jesus. You long to see a, a, a person on your left or your right flourishing in, in relationship in the, in the context of the local church or just growing in godliness or being presented mature. Be patient. Pray. Depend on God. That's how this comes about. And remember I mentioned 1 Corinthians 3. Paul keys right in on this idea in verses 3 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is the growth giver in every situation of life. Just because you're not the growth giver doesn't mean that your labors aren't required. We live in that tension. Just because you don't see the results doesn't mean God isn't at work. 
David didn't see the results. Didn't mean God wasn't at work. Finally then this morning, if God intends to dwell among his people, then we must see clearly what makes that possible. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Not the construction, again, of a facility. Not a, not a place, but a people. David said to Solomon that a man of rest, a man of peace, would build God's dwelling place. The name Solomon means peace. Seems natural. A man of rest, a man of peace, would build my dwelling place. But the name peace in Solomon only points us to one whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. God dwells amongst his people. Solomon may have ruled in peace, but Jesus established peace with God for all of eternity. Jesus secures salvation for God's people. Something that Solomon could not do. Something that David could not do. Jesus accomplishes it for all of God's people for all of eternity. David shed the blood, again, David shed the blood of others for temporary security of Jerusalem. Jesus shed his own blood for the security of God's people for all of eternity. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, what, what, in, what on earth, what, what just happened? I have no idea. The, the reality is that God intends again to dwell with his people. This is our hope. And that hope comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this morning, Mark did call and response. Here's the call and response to you this morning. You don't have to do anything. Don't get anxious. The reality is that you must acknowledge this truth. The reality is in order to be right with God and to dwell with your creator for all of eternity, you must trust him. There is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to bring this communion, this harmony about. You must trust Jesus. You must repent of your sin and turn. If that's you this morning, if you're wondering what that's all about, come talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you or someone you see up front or someone on your right or your left. Don't leave this morning. Again, the watershed moment. Don't leave this morning without, without thinking through the truth of what Jesus has done on your behalf and shedding his blood for the security, uh, for your security for all of eternity. God intends to dwell with us again. Let's pray.